Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlocked, going through all the week's sports news with me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Martin Ziegler from The Times, and Tariq Panja from The New York Times. I feel so often we start with perhaps legitimate scrutiny of FIFA, questioning some of their actions, that let's start on something positive, which is actually the new website where you can see all the football clubs where they're subject to transfer bans. You can click and th- go through all the countries. You can search the database and it's all there in an open way. A bit of transparency, just the type we always call for. Well, congratulations for transparency there. Any interesting any interesting clubs under transfer embargoes? I did briefly look at the uh, the list, although fortunately our good friend Graham Dunbar from AP has uh, logged it all. He's found six Saudi Arabian clubs, five in Argentina's top flight leading African team. So pretty heavy. He's pointing out, you know, several who've reached the Club World Cup in recent years. So these aren't just small teams. Saudi Arabia, notorious um, for being on that list before, you know, before it was published. Everyone, it was an open secret. There'll be a bunch of Saudi teams. The ones that caught my eye, you mentioned the African teams, Wadad Casablanca of Morocco and TP Mazembe of Congo. Um, Big, big teams, regional champions often. Um, so that, that that was a shame. Just just on the broader point you were making at the start, um, is it really that impressive that they're publishing this? Shouldn't they be doing it anyway? I mean, it's not for us. They're a service provider for the football industry. If I'm if I'm a club going through um, the transfer market, FIFA is in charge of the international transfer market. This stuff should be public. It's a service provider, and they've provided a service. Well done, FIFA for doing your job um, and uh, great more to come I hope yeah for instance they don't publish every single person player entity sanctioned in the game for any reason there's no there's no open database of that yeah there probably should be for that um, I, I think that, for example the football association I think effectively does that uh, certainly for the um, uh, anything which has written reasons um, I, so it's a sort of fairly significant defence that's, that's on the Football Association's website. In the past, so up until this summer actually, the, the way clubs would find out who's on a transfer embargo is when they try and um, enter details in the um, transfer matching system, which is that, that system where international trades have to go through um, that is held by FIFA. So I guess they would have known... Um, through there but yeah great it's it's public and quite public this week uh, another award for Gianni Fantino celebrations at FIFA yeah he got something in uh, Dubai didn't he um the, the uh, uh, a uh, award for his contribution to global sport um let's give it full the full title international sports personality <laughs> there we are uh, and he was there, I think, in Dubai for the the, the FIFA Beach World Cup. And, That's coming uh, up in February. Uh, so it's previewing that. And uh, the award's actually from Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the ruler of uh, Dubai. Well, yeah. And um, look, we're, we're in the UK as we're recording this. No stranger to the UK court system, of course, um, Sheikh Maktoum. It was his um, very high-profile divorce from uh, Princess Haya. Um, sister of the ruler of Jordan that played out in the Royal Courts of Justice and some, some 
some horrific details there. Um, and also a big um, owner of horses in the in the industry here, Rob. Yeah, the Godolphin stables. Yeah, he he was a very sort of familiar figure at British horse racing tracks, Royal Ascot. He would sh- previously shared a carriage with the Queen. However, since the divorce trial, um, which came up with some very very embarrassing stuff, um, things that he'd done, uh, effectively organised the the uh, kidnap of um, one of his daughters from the UK. Uh, and that he had bugged the phones of his wife and their lawyer. Um, it, some, he was basically, the, the royal family uh, realised it would be too embarrassing to be seen with him. And I don't think he's been to a, a since that happened, I don't actually don't think he's been to a, um, a, a British horse racing event. No. The other thing that was interesting was how we got this information. I don't know about you, um, my my email inbox was from a company called APO. Um, that's how I got it. It was a release from this company that most, I looked at most of my, a lot of my releases, there are awards given to Fatma Samora when she was general secretary of FIFA. This, this company APO is um, basically an African, African based public relations company that seems to be sending out positive news on, on behalf of FIFA. And they were also involved in in um, some of the testimonies from players supporting the biannual World Cup back in the day, so yeah, um, handy for for FIFA to have these guys on hand. Interesting, you talk about that, and we discuss the communications industry and FIFA's role quite often. And you're saying about how FIFA used that company there to distribute its information. One of the big things from FIFA is making football truly global. That's Infantino's big mission. And I have often pointed out there is a way of fulfilling that through the communications means. They've got this money. They've got all this vast FIFA wealth to put into things like sending out press releases. And why not be supporting some of these FAs around the world, particularly now at the time, the African Cup of Nations and the Asian Cup, to help them get the coverage for their teams, their players to connect perhaps outside the regions? Because there isn't as much coverage globally as they say is the build-up to a Euros, for instance. And that seems to be how you could actually substantially use your status, use your wealth to actually make football global. So some of the talking points are more about conversations with those players, help to connect the, those FAs that don't perhaps have the comms resource. Yeah, lots of small football associations, different parts of the world. The resources are, are, are very, very stretched. So, yeah, this FIFA can help promote their messages messages i'm sure it's a good idea the african um cup of nations starting this weekend uh, and will run for for the next few weeks it, almost tragedy at the start there was a horrible story about the um the gambian team i don't know if you guys followed that at all they they took off on um a, a plane supplied by the host the ivory coast and plane had to turn around after nine minutes the 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 cabin pressure um, changed to a dangerous level. The coach, when it came back, said players had fainted and couldn't be woken up. Um, and it was only the pilot's alertness that stopped what could have been a major tragedy. So, um, yeah, that sounded that sounded terrifying. Hopefully, that that's the last um, kind of scare story, horror story ahead of the tournament, uh, which. 
you know, didn't end well last time in Cameroon when we had that stampede. So here's wishing them all the best for a for a better tournament. That crush that took place during the tournament last time. Um, this time obviously being staged in Ivory Coast, the Asian Cup being in Qatar, which means a return to some of those World Cup stadiums, including Lusail. So it'd be interesting to see where is Qatar a year or so on? Is there a big influx of fans from across Asia? Do they pack into the stadiums locally? What sort of interest? You know, Qatar won the last tournament. They are reigning Asian champions. It's good that the um, the stadiums don't become white elephants, isn't it, for sure? It'd be interesting to see, though, in, in say, in five years' time, whether what, what the, the use of these stadiums that were built for tournaments is. Because you can see immediately after the World Cup, um, they're going to put them to some use, but I think it's the long term that's the greater challenge. And look, they're, they're enormous, these stadiums. A lot of them are humongous for, for a country Qatar size. Um, I was at the Asian Cup um, last time, I, was at, I think it was United Arab Emirates, and it was in the middle of the blockade. That's why Qatar Qatar's victory was quite, quite significant. That was the um, diplomatic attack on Qatar that was led by Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt, etc. And it was quite quite a tournament. There was um, the Qatar team were pelted with shoes and sandals. I think in the semi final when when um, uh, they beat the UAE, if I remember correctly. But in terms of fan bases and people travelling, um, Rob, you asked that question. I don't think there will be a lot of people. There, there, there weren't then. Um, there aren't going to be this time. But there is interesting teams. There, India are playing, for example, uh, Vietnam, uh, Thailand. Uh, China have had a you know, disastrous few years on and off the pitch. Um, recently lost to Hong Kong for the first time since um, the British handover. Um, so that, they'll be interesting to watch. And China and Chinese football was in the news this week. Li Tia, the former coach, um, the former FA president as well, they were paraded on TV to acknowledge that they had paid bribes and receive bribes in order to corrupt Chinese football. So um, back to square one over there, it seems. Yeah, obviously a tournament taking place against the backdrop of a different form of regional instability. This time we've got Palestine playing there. One of their Olympic football coaches was killed in the Israeli strikes last weekend. So that's the tournament taking place with that going on in, in the region too. And then obviously with Saudi Arabia being the focus of so much of football in the Gulf. It's a bit of Qatari attention back again, but at the same time, with so many questions over the Saudi the Saudi football project. Jordan Henderson has probably caused a lot of these questions, hasn't he? Because um, it sort of became apparent at the weekend that um, only a few months into his Saudi Arabian um, foray, um, he wants out. It's uh, He's playing in front of tiny crowds, the heat, and when he, certainly when he started, the heat was pretty bad, and he's basically just not enjoying it and realised there's more to life than huge amounts of money. It's a disaster, isn't it? Calamitous. His reputation was absolutely shredded at the time he signed. There was uh, a lot written, a lot said, because he was such a, a big advocate of the LGBT community. There was the, the, the launch of um, Henderson on social media by his club in grayscale. So those rainbow armbands he, he wore as um, as the Liverpool captain um, were, were not displayed in the way 
they, they would normally be. And now, just a few months on, Martin, you're saying he, he wants out. A uh, bit of due diligence might have been. The idea that Saudi Arabia is hot shouldn't surprise anyone, should it? Well, no. Uh, I don't think the heat uh, was perhaps the, the... He probably thought, well, actually going to be playing during the, the Saudi cooler months most of the time and it wouldn't be too bad. But still, I, I, I think it's not the heat. I think it's so much as the... It, it's the lifestyle, I think. Um, you know, you go from playing in the Premier League in England and it's very, very difficult playing in front of... I mean, we're talking about literally crowds of less than a 1,000 people. The standard's pretty low. The... Um, and then I'm sure you question yourself, you know, why am I, why am I even doing this? I think it's a quite a, a big setback for the Saudi Pro League generally um, that perhaps their most high-profile, um, well, they're definitely their most high-profile English player is basically wants to turn his back on it. That, you know, if they're talking about, you know, bringing in other players, um, which they are, expanding their overseas base, of, um, then that's not going to help them at all. I suppose if they manage to counter it with another signing, they can portray it as actually we're getting younger players in and we're moving away from the sort of veterans and the players in their 30s joining. It's all about how, how they characterise it, what else is announced around the same time. And I suppose for Henderson... I don't think it will hang over him for that long. More if he's trying to sort of talk about social causes, I think it's where it would sort of come into sort of issue. But, you know, if he just gets back playing again somewhere in Europe, I don't know, I think a part of the our industry can move on fairly quickly, can't it? Yeah, perhaps. But let's, we won't be forgotten what happened. Um, you know, if, he, if he's now, if he comes back as a, a big, big advocate, I, I doubt he'll come back as a major advocate in the same way he, he was before, because it just it would be very strange. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if he does. Um, and I was just thinking, I wonder if there's any players, English players, who were hoping for a payday in Saudi Arabia in the future, who are thinking, God, this guy might ruin my chances. He's like salted the ground for them because the Saudis will be thinking, God, these English guys, they're not worth the trouble, perhaps, if, uh, if Henderson goes and, you know, they'll, they'll look elsewhere. The world is their, is their oyster. I suppose one of the issues is the only words we hear from him is being, him being on the defensive about trying to justify why he's gone. Maybe because, you know, there was no mass media sort of engagement right at the start of his time in Saudi, which sort of attempted to deal with that for anyone who wanted, wanted to ask questions. So he sort of kept on coming back to it in various interviews and then sort of going silent. So not a sort of sustained public profile in terms of even just talking normally about football. It's almost like you're sort of in the shadows, a bit like how, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo has been there for a year. And I can't think of anything substantial he's done media-wise, which means it's sort of hanging over him in that sense. Although, you know, he's mixing very much with the elite end of uh, the Saudi state very often too. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like an influencer, I suppose. If that's It seems that's part of their project. So they might be getting what they want from him. They don't really want him to be doing... I don't know, major in-depth interviews. Maybe he hasn't got that much to say, but he's very visible there and with Saudi people in Saudi places, celebrating the National Day, uh, attending the, um, the the big boxing bouts in the front row with people like Turkey Al-Sheikh, the, the, the head of entertainment over there. I think they feel they're getting their bang for the buck from someone like Ronaldo. Um, and, and let's be honest, Jordan Henderson 
33-year-old, um, you know, decent-ish midfielder is, you know, just one of many players. The, the, the negativity around Henderson is probably something they wouldn't mind seeing the back of, probably. Hang on a minute. Three months ago, he was saying very excited about the announcement that Saudi Arabia is bidding to host the 2034 World Cup. Go Saudi Arabia, he said. <laughs> it was that Henderson. Yeah. <laughs> Global ambassador. Now, once he gets out, he can tra- travel the world. Just, he just doesn't have to live there <laughs> and um, earn his corn that way. Will he still be supporting that bid? That would be a big question. Uh, well, you know, the transfer window, obviously, with a, f- a few weeks to go still and see which players actually do head out to, to Saudi or, or end up returning to Europe. Yeah, it'd be an interesting one. Well, this has been a week where two World Cup winning coaches and managers have died. The, the first two people to win it, both as a player and a coach, we had Mario Zagallo, the Brazilian, and then Germany's Franz Beckenbauer, both dying within the space of a few days. So many sort of tributes to what they achieved on the pitch and off the pitch in the dugout too. Um, some initial thoughts, obviously, why perhaps we focus more on one person dying over another. Uh, Franz Beckenbauer obviously getting a lot more global coverage, I would sense, than Zagallo, who actually won four World Cups, two as a player, one as assistant coach, one as head coach. Uh, Franz Beckenbauer winning one as a player, 74, and one as head coach of West Germany in 1990. I was thinking about this, Rob, when, when you when you asked us um, to, to think about this before we, we started the pod. And there's a few reasons. Um, one is, for me, that the times they played in and the uh, media landscape. Um, Zagallo, generation older than Franz Beckenbauer, and he wasn't the superstar of that team. That Pelé kind of was the gold standard player with with um, with Brazil and again it was in black and white Beckenbauer emerges as a supreme player um, color TV in the 70s and and he's in Europe and he speaks English someone I spoke to a Brazilian friend yesterday he was saying God if, if Zagallo spoke English he would have given you guys so much entertainment and that that's one of the other things martin i don't know what you what do you think about about what rob's just brought up there zagallo i mean he although he won two world cups as a player he he wasn't like the sort of superstar not just pele but he he wasn't close to being the superstar of the team you know there are lots more sort of people in more high profile he would be like you know so germany's equivalent of the 1974 team maybe like Early Hernes or Wolfgang Overath. They were like, you know, they, they were, you know, they were key parts of the team, but they weren't the star names. So, I think that's probably one reason. And the other reason is sort of, you know, European, South America. Obviously, from Europe, you're going to focus more on the, on the European uh, players. And I'm sure in South America, Zagallo got a lot more coverage than Beckenbauer did. The, the, the death of those of those. Them yeah, both. or maybe or maybe similar. Um, yeah, so it's similar, but um, but also Beckenbauer remained in the limelight a lot longer. Um, Zagallo, I mean, he he was manager of the Brazil team like that won the nineteen seventy World Cup eight years after being a player. Um, and Beckenbauer was a little bit longer. I think it was uh, sixteen years after being a player that he won it in nineteen ninety. 
Um, but he then sort of remained very, very much in the centre of um, the public attention, sort of led the bid for the 20, 2006 World Cup, then became a FIFA executive committee member. So he was he was always there, whereas I suppose Zagallo didn't go down that sort of administrative route. Um, so he, he perhaps wasn't in people's consciousness, you know, in this sort of modern era so much. This brings us to another though sort of media challenges, I suppose, certainly something that I encountered when someone has died and you have to then immediately report on them, which is how to bring up some of the issues, let's put it first, that Beckenbauer face, because that post-playing career, his role in administration did lead to many investigations, of course, delivering the 2006 World Cup for Germany, seen as the fairy tale summer, but we did have in the early 2000s even one of the British Parliamentary Select Committees looking into wrongdoing by the beard. It went on for many years and there were the subsequent investigations and perhaps it might surprise people because there's been so much focus on, say, other World Cups like 2018 Russia, Qatar 2022, about how they won their bids, that the German bid has sparked a lot of investigations into the uh, allegations of how the votes were won. Glad you brought that up because, um, uh, not to speak for Martin there, I looked at his social media account and you got some stick I saw from people saying it was too soon to bring all of this stuff up. And I, it just isn't too soon. When you are writing an obituary when someone has died, it is in the moment. It is their life in the round, not just the good stuff. He was a big personality. Yes, a great player, a lot of achievements, um, charismatic man. But there were these um, kind of black spots, and not just the ones you just mentioned. They're related to um, World Cup bids and World Cup bidding. There were um, tax fraud inquiries and tax fraud convictions where he's had to pay back millions of um, dollars. There was this, this um, question marks around his, his private life and how he handled that and the impact of, of that. So when you when when someone does pass, someone who is a very significant figure, you look at their life in the round. And I think most people who would do that fairly would have to address these things, um, Martin. Yeah, we did talk about it at the time, what we should do about it, because obviously I was very aware of the investigations and allegations against um, Beckenbauer. Um, and so we decided we'd do it, so we'd do one somebody would write a big sort of piece around a sort of footballer and the manager issues, mainly around the World Cup bids. One was, I mean, it was Jens Weinrich, the, the German journalist, about, I think it was sort of about eight years ago, did a, a expose of the fact there had been a slush fund for the 2006 World Cup bid that Germany had um, to basically cash for votes. And then, after Beckenbauer became a FIFA executive committee member, he there was allegations that he uh, firstly took money to vote for Russia for 2018. And there are also question marks over his relationship with the Qatari Mohammed bin Hammam um, around Qatar's um, bid for 2022. Now, FIFA did investigate this. The ethics investigation was launched, but... Beckenbauer's lawyers blocked him giving any evidence on the grounds of ill health. But And when the sort of time ran, ran out, the statute of limitations ran out, there was a very interesting written ruling from the FIFA Ethics Commission. Basically, 
questioning this sort of claim by his lawyers that he had he was too poorly to um, attend any hearings because they he had been doing other public activities, um, which you know if he could do those, why could he not speak to the ethics committee? But anyway, it was timed out, and um, so yeah, by the time he he died, there were, there were these question marks against him, but no outcomes. And the tone of that FIFA statement was pretty strident from the FIFA judges. The quotes were saying. He did not appear to have any memory problems remembering matches of the 1990 World Cup, an event occurring 30 years ago in vivid detail, talking about the various trips he managed to make even during the pandemic and speeches and interviews he gave. So, you know, these aren't, this wasn't the media pointing this out. This was actually at FIFA judges. I suppose it, it does create a challenge. We had the tributes from FIFA this week from Gianni Infantino. What do you do? How do you pay tribute to one of the greats of the game who featured in sort of all-time FIFA great squad list but how do you overlook then the investigations that were hanging over him it seems like the decision was just to completely overlook all that and how much should a great footballing career negate any later life issues yeah it would have been um, perhaps even more interesting uh, to see what they would have done had the Swiss criminal um, trial been able to be completed that famously had to be um, suspended and, and collapsed towards the tail end of it because the, there was a statute of limitation that passed during the trial process, um, which, you know, had the the Swiss courts, and it wasn't just Beckenbauer, Beckenbauer and two or three other German officials, had they been criminally convicted, uh, there was a lot of evidence there, and Martin talked about some of this uh, just now, what would the tribute be there if someone has been found to have corrupted World, World Cup bids, etc.? But you look, you have to kind of separate the great football player and the great football manager from some of these other things, right? Everyone, there are layers to many people, I guess. It's not not that simple. There are, there are, and you know, the you can also be somebody who's, uh, you know, possibly. Um, Done things, done things which are wrong, and still be a sort of admirable figure in other ways, and you know, from on the pitch, and and a charismatic guy, and you know, I, I met Beckenbach on several occasions, especially before the 2006 World Cup. He when he did a lot of media then, and he was very engaging, uh, very funny guy. Um, so you can see why he's very popular, and it's regional. Uh, Rob, do you think I was? Looking beyond Beckenbauer, I was thinking about Seth Blatter as well, who's obviously still with us. But I, I, I imagine he, his his portrayal and how he'll be remembered might differ depending on what part of the world you're in. I'm thinking in Europe, it might not be the best um, kind of um, eulogy or, 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 or memorial for, for Blatter when his time comes. But if you think about um, Africa, perhaps, and maybe even South America, maybe there'll be a completely different portrayal of the man, given what 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 people in those regions think of what 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 he's done, perhaps. And it also does come down to what someone is being accused of. The there are various sort of very le- various levels of uh, misdemeanors, let's put it like that. And you know, away from football, you know, in the music industry, when there's been. Musicians who've had various cases against them. Obviously, there's, they're called not to hear their music again, but they are very far more grave cases. Is what you might call sort of white collar uh, issues, aren't they? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, yeah. I was thinking, for example, Michel Platini is uh, obviously he's a, he's a but comparatively a, a much younger man, um, but he's had one sort of thing against him, which was this, uh, which he was banned for, which was this taking this payment from FIFA. Um, but I imagine, you know, hopefully, hopefully nothing does happen to him in the next few few years. But if it did, you, I think he wouldn't get a very positive portrayal compared to Beckenbauer, which um, perhaps he should, because you know, in terms of his contribution to football, it's it's very very similar. Mm. Huge, huge influence on the pitch, and we have some closing thoughts on on Beckenbauer. Just looking back on uh, past uh, posts that I made on. Uh, Twitter. I think we encountered him at a conference in 2014 in London. I, you know, certainly got to ask him then about the various allegations swirling around, and he said uh, uh, all the scandals and corruption suspected leads their accusations. There is no evidence, but ending on another quote, he said, "There, uh, I was criticised. I had an arrogance in my behaviour until they understood it." Well, that is remembering Franz Beckenbauer and Marie Zagallo. Remember them as. Uh, Finally, as uh, the footballers who also won the World Cup as manager, something only three people have done. The third being Didier Deschamps with France, who's very much still with us. Moving away from that, it's actually spin off from the Russian doping cases, Martin, something that you've been looking into. Yeah, I think we probably mentioned this um, a couple of years ago, but it's uh, the former president of the International Biathlon um, Federation, Anders Bessenberg, uh, a Norwegian, who has just gone on trial in Norway for corruption. Um, and basically, the, the charges are he took bribes, um, including luxury watches, and um, had prostitutes paid for him by Russia uh, um, in return for covering up Russian doping cases. Barcelona is an endurance sport. It's got, had um, in historically, some fairly major challenges, um, and interestingly, the, the, the whistleblower Grigory Rodchenkov, who was the former head of the Russian anti-doping agency turned whistleblower, is going to give evidence against Bestenberg um, in the Norwegian courts. I think, but via video link from the USA. Um, but this this case, I think, was really really interesting because it, it just showed. You know, going to the very top of sport, some sports, how Russians' influence and um, behaviour were—it was all part of this huge doping operation. Yeah, it was a classic um, investigation. There, it stemmed from Rochenkov's evidence to the World Anti-Doping Agency and um, Gunter Younger, their, their chief investigator. He then. Um, supplied information to, I think, the Norwegian and the uh, Austrian um, authorities. Uh, Norwegian because Besseberg is Norwegian and Austrian because um, the Biathlon Union was uh, based in, in Austria. And the details, Martin, you kind of <laughs> alluded to them. There was um, these, and it was decades, it was years long, they were grooming this man and had groomed him. They had him in their pocket. And his uh, deputy, and his deputy um, Nicole Buresh, um, there was the famous line where he said, "Yeah, there were prostitutes. I'm not quite sure who paid for them, but they were definitely. Yep, that's that's true. <laughs> um, there was um, these tr- hunting trips, um, very elaborate hunting trips 
um, and these alpine forests, as you said, watches, bags of money. And, and the Russians were so, so confident that they could get away with whatever they wanted. And it just makes you really think, you know, once you, if you nobble the guy at the top, and we've talked about leadership in, in these sports organizations and how, how powerful the presidents are. It's, it's it's terrifying. There's no external oversight, so this this case is is really worth following. There's another aspect to this which is mentioned in the in the in the the trial, um, which may come out a bit you know as the proceedings go on, which is interesting. In that the in front the the sports marketing agency, which is actually headed by Seth Blatter's nephew Philippe Blatter. Um, according to the uh, the claims in the court, they paid for uh, Bessenberg to have a BMW X5 car. They paid the lease for several years. Um, they also had the marketing rights for, for Biathlon. Um, so that's another issue for them both to both perhaps in front after the case is, is, is concluded. If there's anything from that, they, they might have to explain what happened there. Um, very interesting, though. Another issue that I've been uh, reporting on this week is the fallout from a racism scandal in English cricket. Martin, you've been on this too as well. It involves Yorkshire, the most successful county in the game. And this whole scandal stemmed from players revealing how they were racially abused for a long period. Azim Rafiq, uh, there for two spells over a decade from 2008 to 2018, all resulted in cricket disciplinary hearings in England led to Yorkshire being fined and also dock points in the system and has raised so many bigger points also about how sports investigate cases because it perhaps only got to this stage because certainly it felt that there was inadequate action by Yorkshire after Razim Rafiq first came forward what, about three and a half years ago with this. The, the club first said there was nothing, there was no issues here, no one had to be found responsible it then led to parliamentary investigations and it being looked into in further hearings because of no one uh, took responsibility for what had been going on. But where we now find ourselves this week is the chairman who was there at the time, Colin Graves, from what, 2008 to 2015, he then went on to become the boss of English cricket, is now mounting a comeback to return to the county as chairman, despite only seven months ago, calling the um, racism, perhaps just banter, dismissing it. And here he is seven months on about to, to regain control. So many strands to this that we've been uh, looking into. Yeah, so this, the basis is basically Yorkshire is probably eight weeks away from going bust. Um, it's run out of money. Um, the, the sort of bad publicity has really affected its sort of sponsorship income. And uh, they owe a huge amount of money, uh, 15 million pounds, basically to Colin Graves, the former chairman, who's now wants to take it over. Um, so they, they had hope. There was talk about Mike Ashley, the sport director, and coming in. That's, that interest disappeared. He never sort of ruled himself out. But from what I understand, he just didn't return any calls. There were suggestions that Indian Premier League franchises would come in um that evaporated so it was basically they were left with the the board there either we go bust or we sell up to colin graves and the looks like that's what's going to happen has to be it has to go to a vote of the members um and of course there's been a furore because 
Graves has he was in charge at the time as Ian Rafiq said a lot of this uh, abuse of him happened um, Graves has said he never was told about this at the time he left in 2015 um, but it's yeah it, it's a very diff- tricky one for cricket and he's you know he did put out a sort of very lengthy apology and apologize for the banter thing which I suppose some people might think was just a sort of PR exercise but um, at least he did it Seven months after the original comments and only in a statement accompanied by his bid to get control. Hmm. What's Azim Rafiq said, guys? The the player? Oh, he thinks... I mean, speaking to him, he thinks cricket's gone backwards. What has it actually learned from the whole series of hearings, the pain that he went through, having to recount everything at those hearings to sort of take on the system as well? Because effectively he was overlooked in terms of what he was trying to bring to light there was not the action that he was hoping for and here he is still sort of fighting and having to talk it up sort of three and a half years after he was sort of went for, went public for the first time mm. and how bad are the finances in in cricket um like you mentioned um I, ipl there and ipl teams we've got ipl franchises yes you know much bigger competition all that money washing uh into india and the franchise of there nearly a billion dollars, around a billion dollars. And what kind of numbers are we talking about, Yorkshire? What what's the debt? How much are these teams worth, Mark? The, the, the finance of, of county cricket are very sort of um, fragile at the moment. It'd be interesting to see what happens in the future, though. I think there is a sort of idea, and that the reason the IPL teams are interested in that the, the it may be that the hundred in the future, at the moment, it's all controlled centrally, and the money's controlled centrally that actually the clubs will be able to, they will control, they will have the income from that rather than centrally. So I think there is that there is some interest. For example, the IPL side is looking at Hampshire. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of this in months to come. But at the moment, clubs such as Middlesex and Yorkshire are absolutely um, on the uh, financially, they're in a very bad place. It comes all from England was where 2020 cricket, the new format was invented and it seems that India's worked out how to just do it better and commercialise it better. Well, they also don't have football um, <laughs> like dominating the, the, the sporting landscape in, in the way um, England has. In a way, you know, when you're a... It's like they have almost monopoly in the way football has over English viewers. Um, it's an incredible story, the rise of IPL. Those franchises, when it started, I think in 2008, guys, were sold for between 60 and $80 million. So we're saying in 15 years, those numbers are now a billion dollars. It's an absolute boom and a real kind of hit with the audiences over there. Um, in a way that, you know, it doesn't matter how, it'd be hard. Whatever they try and do, you can't see cricket ever coming back in the way um, it was here in, in the UK when we were kids, say, you know, terrestrial TV, millions of people watching and, and big stars um, at county level as well. And one of the big events for 2024 is the Men's T20 World Cup in the United States and the West Indies. So that is a moment when they're trying to see can T20 cricket really break the United States as well? Yeah, so 
so that's interesting. India and, and Pakistan uh, will be playing in the um, American side of the draw, at least in the, in the group stages. There, that that would be interesting. So Long Island on June the 9th, the Nassau County International Cricket Stadium. Certainly a big name, big title for the stadium. Big big title. Probably, hopefully for them and uh, and everyone, I anticipate as well. Big crowd. Um, but what what would be interesting is is this for the diaspora who are already, you know, cricket fans, Indians, Pakistanis, uh, Caribbean community that live in um, in the US, on, on the East Coast, certainly over there, as you mentioned? Uh, or, or will it bring new audiences who, who aren't familiar with, 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 with the sport? Um, that would be interesting to see. I suppose in part it might be how we see in the UK when it's NBA or NFL that you get some of the diehard fans delighted that they can finally see it on British soil, whether NFL at Wembley or you know Tottenham when the NBA was here, they'd see it at the O2. But then you will get some of those uh, newcomers just keen to see what it's all about, this intriguing thing of a World Cup and crickets here, perhaps. But it will have that sort of novelty aspect and it'll be the sort of quirks of it. And particularly maybe in some of the media coverage as well, it would be like this, what's this weird thing? Yeah, and also they've got the cricket at the Los Angeles Olympics, haven't you? So it's a sort of, it's almost sort of building up towards that. Yeah, that's um, one that's going to be watching through the year. We did, again, touch on it from last week's part. Let's just return to it as well, because it's one of the themes of the year back in football. Financial fair play, we're waiting the outcome of Premier League cases, but also we've had an update on Premier League finances, the latest club to drop their annual report, Newcastle United, with uh, so much intrigue about what they are uh, able to do with the PAF ownership. Yeah, so actually, um, Darren Eels, the chief executive, was very sort of, you know, Honest about the, the challenges they face, because I mean they've, they've made losses of um, seventy-five million odd um, over the last season. Uh, he was saying the profit and sustainability rules um, are such that actually they're going to have to sell somebody, like, potentially even one of their sort of bigger names, in order to sort of um, comply with the rules and allow them to bring in more players. Uh, he he sort of pointed out how, for example, Aston Villa sold Jack Grealish for a lot of money, then we're able to like spend that. Um, and because you can amortise, spread the, the transfer, the spend over several years, if you do get a big chunk of money in, then then that's quite helpful. But he was saying it's the actual, the rules slow down their efforts to sort of break into the, you know, the, the, the top, the big six, as it were, um, because, yeah. the, you know, they still, in terms of their income, they're still you know, way behind the big six. Yes, the two hundred and fifty million odd in in revenue for Newcastle. I think Darren Eels compared that to the seven hundred million or uh, number that Manchester City announced. Um, so, you know that that is that is some going. Um, but these results come before Newcastle's Champions League uh, income can be counted for this year. The the new seller. Sponsorship, you know, that world-famous Saudi-based uh, entertainment company that's now on, the, on their shirt fronts and, and an Adidas uh, shirt deal. Uh, but, but yeah, they, these are the, the, the rules that have got Everton in trouble 
um, as well. What they what are they called? The profit and sustainability rules. And go, how do they work again? You're allowed to lose up to one hundred and five million pounds over three years. But a lot of a lot of that, you know, you can say how how can they if they if they've lost you know more than seventy million pounds in one season, how can they comply? Uh, a lot of that can be written off. So spending on um, women's football, youth football, any capital development, that can all be written off. Um, various other things as well. So uh, Newcastle, I think they're fairly um, confident that they are they they won't be. Uh, in trouble when we will find out next week if any Premier League team is going to be charged. And I think we spoke before that you know, there's a, certainly Nottingham Forest are very worried that they will. It has obviously led to various bits of coverage about Newcastle from some of the reporters who cover the club about the whole it's just protecting the cartel and some of the arguments we heard about Manchester City in the past with them journalistically questioning why rules are in place that impede Newcastle's ability to invest and to try to catch up with the others and how they're being artificially held back in that sense and not being able to enjoy the spending. Obviously, from a media perspective, some of those journalists who cover the club would benefit if they did have greater ability to spend on players, which perhaps would boost their success and actually help the team become more even more prominent. Yeah, there's other some in you spotted something in the accounts, didn't you, uh, Tarek? About loans from Newcastle United. Yeah, uh, well, um, I, I can't take credit for that. All I can take credit for is reading. Uh, there was um, um, just buried in 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 a couple of articles on these accounts, one on on the BBC website and one on the Newcastle Chronicles, kind of way down was this curious line um, about two loans to uh, Amanda Staveley, um, that British businesswoman who helped broker the deal uh, when Newcastle eventually was bought by Piff. She got a small share of the, the club as well with, Ruben, with the Rubin brothers. And yeah, it were these loans for legal fees. And I was kind of racking my brains to thinking, you know, um, why does the club need to loan uh, this successful businesswoman um, to two tranches of around 600,000? I, I don't know. But I do know that she has been embroiled in a couple of cases that I, I'm aware of or what we should be aware of that have been uh, published in the media. One was with Mike Ashley, the former owner uh, of Newcastle. And I think it involved... Um, not doing him down or doing his 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 ownership down, and um, this related to talking about the branding around St James's Park. And the other case is with a guy, a Greek shipping magnate called Victor Restis, who's interesting in a different way. Um, I think he was on the board of Manchester City when it was owned by Taksin Shinawatra and. Um, Amanda Stavely helped Taxin to sell um, Man City to, to these um, current overlords who have led them to all of this success. And Victor Restis um, was going to be, in another way, Amanda Stavely's character witness in her suit against Barclays a couple of years ago. In the end, he didn't show up. So quite a lot of intrigue there. 
I mean, there always is around uh, Amanda Stavely. So, you know, watch this space. That um, Mike Ashley legal action was launched actually after Amanda Stavely um, spoke to to us, I think, after a Premier League meeting. I think all three of us were there, weren't we? Yes. Um, And uh, it was the comments she gave us and which then landed her into legal trouble. So uh, we we had a, a small but unfortunate part to play in that. Not through any attempt to catch her out. I think, if I remember right, we were just trying to understand the detail and what it was with various questions. It was not gotcha questions. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, it, it was, um, uh, you know, a chance to talk to um, a, a, at least a small owner of one of the most exciting um, developments in, in football. And to be fair to her, she, she gave us um, uh, the time, Amanda, Stavely is at least then was was very keen to talk to the media um, for whatever reason, um, and and that was that was very helpful. Um, there was another line, if I remember right, about um, possible a possible purchase of Audrey Hepburn's estate. So I'm not sure what happened to that, but that would have been quite a quite a high profile swoop by um, Stavely and Co. At that taking. What a variety of subjects we do end up covering on here. Well, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport Unlocked. As ever, you can message us at Sport Unlocked on X, Facebook and Instagram. The messages drop into the inboxes. Also, sportunlockpod at gmail.com. And if you hit subscribe, you land in your feeds automatically. Now, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.